Ah, well, good morning. I woke up this morning, I saw the news, I got discouraged. Um, I'm not really going to talk about that news. You can find it later if you haven't seen it already. But uh, it just seems like the fire that's burning in our land keeps receiving new fuel. And uh, we have to be aware. And we have to think. That's actually why I am very thankful about this morning's message. This morning's message will be taken uh, as the next in the series that we've been in, in the book of Exodus, uh, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 28. But uh, these times are very uncertain. It's a global pandemic. Race relations, police violence, economic challenges all around us, injustice, uncertainty. And of course, we all have questions as a result. How will all of this play out? Will America survive? What will the future be like? Will it be something I even recognize? Where is God in all of this? And does he even know what's going on? And of course, we struggle to understand our place in all of this. As a person, how can I make a difference? As Americans, what can I support politically? As the church, how do we fulfill our calling as a holy and royal priesthood? Big questions. But really, they should not be new questions to us. We should always be asking those questions. How do I fulfill my calling as a priest, as an ambassador of Christ? to the world around me, whatever I find going on. This morning we will be looking at Exodus chapter 12, and we will be able to discern the beginning of some of the answers to some of these questions. I don't claim, and you should not think, that there's any way we're going to exhaust all of the possibilities and answer all of the questions. But what I would like to do is go backwards a little bit in time to 1956. In 1956, two significant events took place in American culture. First, in early October of 1956, Cecil B. DeMille's epic motion picture, The Ten Commandments, was released in theaters. Six weeks later, I was born. For most of my life, this classic movie, motion picture, has been broadcast on television just about annually in the spring, right near Easter. But... In the day and age of internet streaming, I realize there is a possibility that 
a whole generation that has risen up has no idea what I'm talking about when I say the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner. So uh, for those of us who have seen it for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years or more, the Ten Commandments has formed our idea of the biblical story from creation to the deliverance of a nation from the bondage of slavery. So if you are not old enough to remember it, that's what the movie's about. So I want to build a metaphor about movies. So if, if we have seen a movie, any movie, let's use the Ten Commandments, for example. If we have seen a movie, what we see is a series of scenes, which, when they're strung together, creates a story. And the story may be bigger than the events going on on the screen. The Ten Commandments is one movie like that because it actually talks about everything in the Bible from Genesis through the end of Exodus. Well, we see scenes, but we grasp the whole. And in fact, once we've seen an entire movie, we are able to go back see individual scenes, and know where we are in the story. But what we cannot see, watching a movie on the screen, is everything that's going on behind the scenes. Right? We cannot see the cameraman. Or if there are several angles being photographed, we cannot see the camera operators. We cannot see the set. We cannot see the sound stage. We can't see the sound people, the equipment. We can't see the makeup crew that was engaged before everybody got on the scene and they're over there powdering the nose and getting rid of the glare from the bright lights. We cannot see the vision that the director had until we watched the whole movie. We cannot see how he worked carefully with all of the different components to make his vision come come alive on the screen. And we cannot see the tireless efforts of the producers who, for months, maybe years before production began, were out there pitching the idea, trying to get financial support and support from the studios financial backing, etc. So when we get to Exodus chapter 12, like we are today, we see a scene that we are aware of. Especially, and probably unfortunately, if we have grown up watching Cecil B. DeMille's epic motion picture, we get to chapter 12 and we think we've seen it before. We think we know what's going on. We think we know what's going on behind the scenes. And we think we know the bigger picture. So what is happening in this scene in Exodus chapter 12? So here we go. 
Exodus chapter 12, scene 1, take 1. Okay, roll them, right? Action. Ah, well, what's going on? Well, Passover is about to be instituted. Passover. What is that? Well, if we're going to understand it, we need to notice and remember some of the scenes that came before. We have, in the past weeks, looked at nine plagues that God has poured out on the nation of Egypt. Before that, we saw Egypt, I'm sorry, we saw Israel in, in bondage as slaves in Egypt for 400 years or more. Before that, we saw God make a promise to a man and promise him a land. Send that man from his home to that promised land and tell him, I will take care of you and your descendants now and forever. We also saw that man lose his trust in God and leave the promised land and go to Egypt. So, in the big picture, we see a lot of scenes that don't necessarily play out in Exodus. Those scenes tell us about a relationship between God, the people he promised, and their time in Egypt. They were in Egypt as a result of their own choices, as a result of their own sins. Uh, Sin. When I say that, what I'm talking about is their lack of trust in God to fulfill his promises. When we get to Exodus chapter 12, we are watching God resolve some of those issues. The issues of sin the issues of slavery, the issues of injustice, the issues of his own identity. Uh, Pastor Alex has been telling us one after another through nine different plagues how each plague addressed some of the idolatry in Egypt, each plague addressing one of the Egyptian gods and calling and actually passing judgment on those gods and on the people who worship falsely. And all the while, God has been, through Moses, talking to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me. So that's kind of the... That's kind of the big picture and a look at a few scenes. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. And I think we need to stop and pay attention for a while, ask God to fill us in on the behind the scenes and on the bigger picture. So pray with me if you will, and we'll get into this passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, these days are crazy. They seem crazy to us. Uh, We know that they are not crazy to you. None of this takes you by surprise. None of the civil unrest, none of the abuses of power, none of the 
injustices that are being carried out take you by surprise. You've seen it all before. You laid it out here in Exodus for us as one example among many throughout the generations. And so we seek to learn from you what it is that you do in these circumstances, how it is that you bring about justice. We desire to see what provisions you have made in order to renovate our situation today. And we do it by looking at how you renovated the situation between Israel and Egypt way back at the time of the Exodus. So speak to us, teach us, guide us into the fulfillment of what you have called us to be for the sake of your name and for the sake of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. So, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And what we're going to see is um, not really a plague. The plagues have passed. This is a judgment. A judgment that comes when a people or a ruler will not pay attention to what God is trying to do. When God is trying to get our attention, we'd better pay attention. Because what we have here is a story that's bigger than Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner arguing back and forth about whether Pharaoh's going to let the people go. Uh, at least if you know, you're from my generation and you're familiar with the movie and it's, it's kind of painted your understanding of this interaction, we get the idea that this is a contest between two men, two leaders, the leaders of two nations. And they're kind of going back and forth and one is the son of a slave cast out, a murderer, a uh, fugitive from justice coming back into the most powerful land on the planet, addressing the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh, and saying, let my people go. But that's really not what's going on. What's going on is that God is using Moses to confront a false god. Pharaoh. The exchange is not between Moses and Pharaoh, it's between God and Pharaoh. <clears throat> For Pharaoh is seen as a god in Egypt. And of course, there are all these other gods who have control uh, over or influence on natural forces throughout Egypt, and all of them have been addressed in the nine plagues so far. But now, God is addressing Pharaoh, the false God, the one who can actually stand up and speak for himself. None of the others 
in Egypt could. And when this encounter takes place, God will have prepared his people to move. And that's really what Exodus 12 is about. So I want to look at Exodus 12, and it's actually kind of broken down into four sections. We'll look at two and a half of those sections today. Uh, The first section starts at verse 1 and ends at verse 13. And it is the establishing of the Hebrew calendar and the Passover, as well as one of the feasts of the Jews, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what is written is this, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. And you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. More than that, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you will eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned to you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, we need to stop here. There's a few things going on. Obviously, there's going to be some travel involved. Eat it, eat it quickly, eat it in haste, eat it dressed to go. And put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, the cross member above the door. So they paint their door frame with blood so that when the Lord moves through the land of Egypt and killing the firstborn, he will see that blood and pass over. So the lamb is called the Passover lamb. Okay, we get that. We've seen that a lot. Um, 
And if we've seen the movie, though, we have kind of a different and probably wrong idea. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but if I said these words, let's see if, uh, if it would mean anything to you. If there is to be another plague in Egypt, God will bring it by your mouth. Does that sound familiar? That's actually, you know, in the movie, what Moses said to Pharaoh in the throne room. He said, yeah, the, the, the ninth plague was over, the darkness was lit, lifted, or about to lift, and Moses says to Pharaoh, will you humble yourself before God now? And of course, Pharaoh says, no, no it's not going to happen. I'm not letting these people go. It's too high a price to pay. And, he says, if the Nile is to run red with blood, it will not be by the hand of your God. Moses remembered, when he was born 80 years ago, the streets of Goshen, where Israel was living, ran red with blood because Pharaoh's father had commanded the killing of the firstborn child in Israel, of every family in Israel. Um, Moses remembered that and said it to Pharaoh. You will do what your father did. And Moses left. The next scene in the movie, uh, since we're talking about scenes here, the next scene, Moses is gathered together with his sister and brother, and they are getting ready for this event, this Passover, this judgment on what we just read said, all the gods of Israel. This is a judgment on all the gods of Israel. <clears throat> Moses is there, and the queen, Pharaoh's wife, comes in, Nefertiri, if you remember the movie, comes in and says, Moses, you know, you should really relent, be reasonable, be with me, because she wanted to be with Moses. Uh, stay with me, we'll, we'll get all this sorted out. Because Pharaoh's not going to let you go. He has already determined what he's going to do. He's going to kill the firstborn in all of Egypt. And Moses turns as if this is news to him. And in the movie, he says... Oh, God, this is a terrible thing. He says, oh, God, it is by Pharaoh's own word that you will free your people. And then talks about the death of the firstborn. He turns to the queen and says, it is not my son who will die. It is your son. And it's because of your husband's arrogance. So that's a wrong picture. Because it gives us this idea that, you know, maybe God didn't really know what was going to go on and he had to wait for Pharaoh to tell him what the next judgment is going to be. It didn't work that way. Actually, way earlier in chapter four, uh, four I believe it was, chapter three, um, actually it's chapter four of Exodus, verse 22, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 
Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. I will kill your firstborn. Now, this is an interesting thing because in this scene, in this story, uh, Moses has not been back to Egypt yet. He has never talked to Pharaoh yet. He has just left Midian. He's on the road going to see Pharaoh to say, God says, let my people go. And God stops him and says, here, Moses, this is what's going to happen. You will carry out all the plagues that I gave to you. And when they're all carried out, Pharaoh will not let my people go. So you say this to him, I will kill your firstborn son because Israel is my son and you would not let him serve me. So God knows what's going on. He knew way before this time. He established that this judgment would take place because he knew ahead of time the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. He knew the pride, the arrogance that went along with a man elevating himself to the level of Godhood as Pharaoh had done. The next section of the 12th chapter of Exodus from 14 to 21 talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That feast was to commemorate this event. It's a seven-day-long feast, and it starts immediately after Passover is celebrated every year. So every year, Israel is to remember. This is how God set us free. They kill their Passover lamb. They have their Passover meal. And immediately from that point on, enter into a feast for seven days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's kind of important because the whole idea of unleavened is that there's no yeast in the bread. The idea there is that when, way back with Moses... When God was going to pass through Egypt and personally himself kill the firstborn of, every, of everything, of cattle, of fish, of people, you name it. Uh, when God was going to do that, he uh, told Israel every year, every year in commemoration of this event, in commemoration of me, freeing you from slavery in commemoration of me executing justice. We'll get back to that in a minute. In memory of this, I want you to do exactly the same thing. Get dressed up like you're about ready to flee, kill the Passover lamb, uh, but before you kill it, in the day between the time you get it on the 10th on the day of the month and the 14th day of the month when you actually slay this lamb. In that four-day period, I want you to clean out all of the leaven from your home. Leaven would be yeast or mold. Kind of gross. But uh, anything that, that might be a leavening agent because leaven permeates. It pollutes everything it touches. Now, in some cases, that pollution is desirable, like in bread, right? Because it rises if you put yeast in it. But yeast, leaven, is a symbol of sin. And God wanted us to clean out our houses, get rid of all sin 
dedicate ourselves to him, get ready to walk away from the result of our sin and walk into a new relationship with him. Just as he was doing in Egypt with Israel. He was asking them to walk away from the land that represented their own sin. So that's what that section is about, and I'm not going to read it word for word. But beyond that, in verses 23 through 28, this part I am going to read, God didn't just want them to do this every year to commemorate this event. He wanted them to do this as a memorial, to remember. It's not about tradition. It's about an event that is important. And God wants Israel to memorialize this event. So in verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You will say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Okay, this is the story. These are the scenes. This is the event. We could say, amen, walk out of here and be true to Scripture. But we cannot say, amen, walk out of here and be true to the calling with which the Lord has called us. As I said, this was not a contest between Moses and Pharaoh. This is a contest between God and a false God. And it reveals something to us. First of all, it reveals that God does not forget his promise He remembers his promise. He carries out his promise. We may go through 400 years of bondage and not understand that God has a bigger plan. And we just don't know what it is. So when we see this, we need to remember there's a bigger picture. Small picture, two men going at it, Moses and Pharaoh. Bigger picture, the true God and a self-proclaimed demigod going at it. Bigger picture, 
the God of the universe dealing with sin. Dealing with slavery, bondage, injustice, brutality, murder, you name it. Dealing with disease. Dealing with every foul thing that comes about as a result of man's rebellion against God. Sin. That's the big picture here. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, have to take a lesson from Exodus. In this day and age, with what's happening in our nation, in our culture, and globally, we have to be able to enter into what it is that God has called us to when he freed us from Egypt. When he freed us from sin. I want you to notice the relationship of a couple of things in in this whole story. There is, of course, the relationship between Moses and Pharaoh, between God and Pharaoh. There is the relationship between Egypt and Israel. There is a relationship between God's promise and Israel's bondage. There is a relationship between Israel's sin and its bondage in Egypt. All of these things are different components of a big concept. There is also a relationship between the Passover, which refers to a lamb. There's a relationship between the Passover and the release from bondage. There is a relationship between the firstborn and establishing justice. So I want to bring us into the New Testament. I want to bring us through those relationships into the modern day. The day that began at the cross of Christ. Because it is there that this big picture in Exodus gets its real significance and meaning. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 15 through 18. This passage tells us something. It reveals what was actually going on in Exodus chapter 12. It makes a statement, makes this statement. He, the author here is talking about Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him 
and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This, this is exactly what was going on on one of those levels, not the Moses to Pharaoh level, not the God to Pharaoh level, uh, but the God to justice level, and a little bit on the God to Pharaoh level. What this tells us is that first, firstborn, there's only one firstborn, right? I mean, okay, uh, if you have siblings and you are the first sibling born, just stand up for a minute in your family. Okay, good. So remain standing. Uh, If you, well, everybody had grandparents or has grandparents, but if your grandparent, any of them, were the first born among their siblings, stand up. Okay, remain standing. Um, What about your parents? If either of your parents were the firstborn in their family, then stand up. Okay, remain standing. Now, uh, for the rest of us, if we have children, just if you have children, just stand up. Because if you have children or a child, then one of them was born first, right? So, there it goes. Everybody in the room is standing. Um, except Nick. <clears throat> None of, none of those things pertain to you? Really? Mm-hmm. Well, one day you will have children, we hope and pray, and then you will be able to stand. So as a future parent, why don't you stand up? All right, excellent. Uh, no, the, the, the point is, and actually the story in Exodus tells us, every household in Egypt was affected because everybody has a firstborn in their lineage in their home, in their family, whatever. So now you can sit down. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, no, what this in Colossians tells us is, really, there's only one firstborn. Otherwise, he'd be just another born, right? Uh, there is one firstborn. The primary firstborn in all of creation is the person of Jesus Christ, according to Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 18. And he created everything. And he is the reason for which it was created. In other words, he created everything for himself. It says that right there. By him all things were created. For him all things were created. Um, It says that he has the preeminence in all of creation. That's really what the firstborn child is about. The firstborn child inherits the kingdom on the death of the king, right? The firstborn child inherits the family property. Uh, at the death of the parent. So firstborn, that's what it's about. It's about right. It's about privilege. Um, And the firstborn has specific privilege. And in the case of Jesus Christ, he is the firstborn of all creation. All things are his. Now let's look at another passage really quickly. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 
Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to have to find it here. Tell you what, I'm going to do it the easy way with the automatic searcher that I have here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, how's that? Verse 7. So, 1 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 7. It says here, and now, this is the same author as the Colossians passage. This is Paul. He is writing, and he's writing to a group of people who have a situation that we all have and that Israel had. That is, there's sin in their life. And so he writes to them saying, Clean out the old leaven, the old sin. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, like a new lump of dough. Right? So you can make this unleavened bread just like at the Passover. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, but with the leaven of ma- or, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so Christ, it says right there, is our Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover is the lamb. What happened to the lamb? Sacrifice the lamb, spread its blood on the doorposts. Right? So that when God passes through Egypt, executing judgment on false worship, he will pass over you. So here we stand in the 21st century. We have a Passover. It is the person of Christ. He was sacrificed. Why? so that his blood might be painted on us. And when it comes time for judgment, God pass over us. But he is also the firstborn. And if we think about the Exodus passage, God is contesting with Pharaoh, the true God with the self-proclaimed demigod. God is going to pass judgment on that pride and arrogance, that sin. And he does it with the death of the firstborn. Why? It's important. The person of God, his identity, true worship, where justice, where virtue, where morality comes from, That's important, and to pervert that by taking it on ourselves in order to make those determinations, that is evil. It is very evil. How evil is it? It required, in order to make a way for Israel to be freed from bondage, it required the death of the firstborn of everything in Egypt. And for us... For our sin, it required the death of the firstborn of all creation. 
And by doing that, God displayed his perspective on justice. His perspective on justice is he pays the penalty for us because he loves us and extends mercy to us. In this day and age, justice is spoken of a lot. But I think it's rarely spoken of that way by the world. In this day, when we see injustice that has been carried on for hundreds of years in our own land, If that injustice is going to be dealt with, it will be dealt with through death. But what do I mean by that? I don't mean it's time to go out and fight. No. What I mean is it's time to lay down our lives. It's time for us to step forward and call for the banishment of sin to call for the release from bondage. Why? Because that's the pattern God established. That's his way of dealing with injustice. See, we have to be out there like Moses. It looked like Moses and Pharaoh confronting one another, but it wasn't. We need to be out there talking to individuals, talking to people, explaining to them the relationship between the Passover and the firstborn and how that provides for us a way to escape our bondage to sin. So Moses and Pharaoh, man to man, human to human, We need to be out there, human to human, explaining the way of salvation. God to Pharaoh, the same level of communication is going on today. Because God is making his appeal through us, calling the lost to himself, calling the world to himself. And it's when, just like in this Corinthians passage, he talked about the old leaven and the new leaven, the, un, the, the, the old way, which was leaven, and the new way, which is unleavened. When he was talking about that, what he's saying is, when Christ is your Passover and God has passed over in the, the judgment of death, when he has passed over you and you have experienced that Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, as your Passover lamb, when that's happened, the old things are gone. The old leaven is gone. Now you are unleavened, cleaned. There is a chance now for us to relate to other people, but also to bring God into the life of other people so that God and other people can relate in an unleavened way. What what am I trying to say? Look, 
people mess things up. God cleans it up. And he cleans it up through the blood of his son. The Passover. The firstborn. And he cleans it up on this level. God to sin. Man to man. God to God. Or real God to demigod. And God to sin. Those are the three tiers in this story. The three levels that things are being carried out on. The three levels God asks us to enter into as we walk in the new life he has established for us. That's the lesson of Exodus. That's the fulfillment of what God has called us into. For Israel, it was called out of bondage to Egypt in order to live for God. For us, it's called out of bondage to sin in order to represent God and be his ambassadors on earth, as the book of Corinthians says, as if God were in us, making his plea, saying, be reconciled to God. And it is through that reconciliation that was cost the blood of the firstborn, the Passover, it is through that blood and through that reconciliation that we have any hope that peace or justice might be established in our day. So stand with me and we'll pray. And I'll dismiss you. Oh, well, we'll have a song after that. No, we'll have a song. It's a great song. Father, um, you have painted this picture. You have created these scenes, established this story Uh, presented us with this film, if you will, for all of these years in order that we might be reconciled to Christ, in order that we might bring people to you to be reconciled to you, in order that we might be reconciled to one another. Do not allow us to be comfortable overriding your design for our life as Pharaoh was comfortable declaring himself to know better. Restore a right heart in us. Restore a right relationship between you and us. Restore a right relationship between us and our neighbors that we may do what Jesus said, love the Lord our God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourself. For you have done great things.